0: You are now listening to the April 13th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Walking Our Talk, Grace Upon Grace, and it's time to pray the Bible. First, let's begin with Walking Our Talk.
1: Welcome to Walking Hour Talk with Alan and Polly Heller. In this podcast series, Alan and I will discuss material adapted from our book, The Marital Mystery Tour. Join us as we share practical steps to put into action God's principles from His Word, one step at a time.
2: So, Polly, we get to keep going through the marital mystery tour. Last week we gave an introduction and we talked about how we came up with a concept and that uh, the Beatles were doing the magical mystery tour, but we were doing the marital mystery tour, and I'm still 43 years later trying to figure out how to do this thing. (laughs) So, But uh, today we're going to be talking about uh, friendship, and we capsulized the word comradeship. Webster's Students Dictionary defines comrade as a chamber fellow, a companion, or an associate. It's derived from the Latin word for chamber, and it evokes an image of an associate or someone joined with another in action, function, a colleague, a partner, an accomplice, a close companion. And so in marriage, a comrade is one who shares not only the bedroom, we say, but also the boardroom. And so we make joint decisions together.
1: That's right. <laughs> <laughs> we- so
2: so. what's so important about friendship in a marriage, though, Paulie? That's what we're, we're trying to get to. You know, hormones and beauty, tend to decrease as the age, uh, as we have seen as we're getting older and, um, you know, we still love each other, but our relationship can't just be based on the hormones from that first blush of enjoyment of each other by seeing each other. Of course, you didn't really enjoy me that much when you first <laughs> saw me. he <laughs> said, oh my goodness, is that what you have for me, Lord?
1: Well, here's the thing. there, There's this popular movie that, that's that been around for a long time uh, with Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan called When Harry Met Sally. And the, the premise of that movie is that men and women cannot be friends. That that you might try to be friends with each other, but ultimately you're either drawn to each other sexually or and, and then when you get sexually involved with somebody that you're not really romantically involved with it just ruins the, mm. the friendship. You just can't be friends. And uh, that, I don't, I'm not saying whether I agree or disagree with that, but the point is that in our culture, most marriage relationships start out with a sexual attraction. There's something in the other person that, that attracts the, the opposite sexes to each other and um and if that hope for for some kind of fulfillment of that is not there then the relationship just doesn't work and a, a lot of people end up getting sexually involved before they've established even though this is not god's plan for us he god calls us to purity before marriage and uh, And a lot of people don't do that. (laughs) It used to be sort of a cultural standard, but that's kind of gone by the wayside. And people tend to expect that young couples are just going to get sexually involved before they get married. And that doesn't allow them time to explore the depths of each other's personalities, to work on... Whether they agree or disagree with issues with each other, they, they, right, they just we, don't establish a depth of relationship before they get involved. Right.
2: And I mean, we had a professor, you know, in seminary that talked about marriage and said, you know, we, we get a, um, a, a new deal, then we have an ordeal and we want a, a new deal. Or something
1: like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> However that I get
2: a deal and <laughs> I, and I see it and then I want a new deal and then we have an ordeal. We have
1: an ordeal and then we want a new deal. Right. So, so
2: there are common interests we have time together we we want to base a friendship on commonalities and at the beginning we we talked uh, a little bit about this in our trust series but at the beginning there's this thing where it's just Everything you like, I like, and we find all the common things, and it's like a superficial relationship at the beginning. And everybody has to start a relationship at the beginning in, you know, what are the things that we have in common? But you can't build a long-lasting relationship on those things. And then we talk about testing, the testing of the commitment of the relationship. When I see something that I don't like in you, am I going to accept you? And then we talk about exposure that, uh, you know, you start seeing the warts or the things that um, you're going, hmm, do I want to spend the rest of my life with this person if all this stuff is a part of their life? Which usually leads to conflict. And then our goal and I think God's goal in marriage is oneness, is to uh, the two become one, he says. They'll leave their father and mother. And, you know, they, he said that before there were fathers and mothers, I think. Um, and the two will become one. So let's just talk about a little bit about what happens in terms of superficiality. Like, think about our relationship and what were the things that, I mean, we were came, both came from Jewish backgrounds. We both were gymnasts. We both had... Uh, a real desire to go into ministry. When we first met each other, we were part of a group called Campus Crusade. And, um, you know, there were just a lot of things in common that we really enjoyed.
1: Well, and when you first meet another person, you just want to find out things about them. Where are you from? How many people were in your family? What experiences have you had in life? and you you just find uh, the things that are on the surface of one of the other person's life. You learn all these things about each other, you know who who their favorite sports teams are and what's their favorite color and what do they like to do for fun and so you find a lot of common ground with each other at the very beginning just. Uh, doing things together and learning the things that are on the surface and of course at the beginning of a relationship the only things that you expose to each other are the things that you think that the other person wants to see so that they'll be attracted to you and that's Right d- so you're putting on natural. your best Yeah I mean you're not De- deliberately trying to deceive somebody by saying, okay, I'm not going to show you the worst part of myself on our first date. But if you showed the fir- <laughs> worst part of it
2: yourself on the first date, you probably wouldn't have a second date. That's
1: right. That's right. right. So you want to show, you want to reveal the things that you think the other person is going to like about you.
2: Well, Proverbs 18.24 says, One who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And so those are the kinds of friends we want when it's not a marriage relationship, but we're focusing on marriage. And so there is a friend that sticks closer and a brother. How does that happen? It happens through the trials, the tribulations. You think about right now, think about somebody you're very close to. And usually the reason why you're close to them is because, one, they accept you no matter what. Two, they're committed to you in a way that even if you mess up, they are able to look beyond it. And even if you have conflict, they still come back the next day and are saying, hey, how you doing? That was really tough. And, and you work through it. And we'll talk more about that kind of thing in terms of forgiveness and the need for that in order to restore a relationship because that's one of the main indicators of it. Mm-hmm. So at the beginning, it's superficial and sort of news, sports and weather. And then we go on to what? Exposure, right? We start.
1: Uh, uh, well, I just wanted <laughs> to say, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I just wanted to talk a little bit more about that idea of being able to disagree and still be friends. And I think that that maybe that is part of the exposure that you're talking about, you start to, as you get to know each other a little bit better, you start to expose more of the areas where you might be different.
2: Right. And actually, you know, there's the testing phase where I'm sort of laying something out there and saying, are you going to accept me if I tell you about my terrible family background? Or something awful that I did or whatever. So it starts with testing and then goes to this exposure, which that's when we feel vulnerable.
1: Right. And somewhere in there, you you commit to having a relationship with this person. And so you say, okay, it's going to be worth it to me to maintain this friendship and still have this person see my, the areas where I'm insecure, or where I'm not perfect, where I might have some bad habits and see, do they still accept me when I allow them to see, when I expose these things about myself that maybe they're not going to like. Mm-hmm. And um, and sometimes you're you've already made the commitment, and this is what happens in the marriage. You commit to each other, but you've never exposed the fact that oh, I just can't stand it when you do such and you such. do mm-hmm. such and such a thing, or I really have an anger problem, but I've always held it in. And now we're married. Now we're committed. And now
2: I'm yelling and screaming, and you never saw that before. Right?
1: You never saw that before because I I. I really didn't want held to show it you in. That. I took a lot of effort to hold it in, but now that we're married and now that we're committed, I can let I down can let down. Mm. I can you know let it out
2: and so that is the problem when couples i mean so many couples now that I do premarital counseling with have already gone past the sexual phase and are are having sex, but wondering why they're having problems and conflicting and not being able to get. Intimate, not physically, but, you know, God's design is we get spiritually intimate, and then we know our soul, our mind, will, and emotions, and then we get to the body. But the world does just the opposite. Right. We get to the body and all the hormones and excitement and passion, and then we try and build our relationship on that. But as far as I... uh, can see over the past 43 years, every day is not a 10 with you, even <laughs> though you are a 10 to me. And I love you very much. But,
3: keep but talking. yeah,
2: <laughs> but the, you, there's no way you can keep the pitch of the infatuation phase and all the newness that goes on. At some point, we get to know each other. And it's interesting that the biblical uh, reference is to know in Hebrew means actually to have intercourse with one another. I mean, to be, be connected with each other. Mm-hmm. And um, we just don't, many people don't realize that when you've overstepped God's bounds and design, that will cause static in the relationship in other areas that you don't connect that it's about that and
1: well and there's just something about the sexual relationship i think especially for guys that they it's sort of a go to you know once they've established a sexual relationship with a woman they just think that that is what's going to solve everything.
2: Right. Well, then they conquer and everything, uh, and then they lose interest. And that's what's so hard because they haven't built a friendship and haven't explored other areas, which is what the woman wants. The woman wants relationship. Yeah. She marries him to get to know him. He's grunting and, and at the dinner table going, mm-hmm. No. Yeah.
1: But the thing is, women have to take responsibility for this. Mm. Uh, They allow that sexual relationship to happen thinking that, oh, well, after this, then we'll establish some intimacy. But as a result of caving in and allowing the sexual relationship to happen, they're actually thwarting the very process that they desire to take place because they're not uh, forcing <laughs> this guy to go dig a little bit deeper.
2: All right, so we're we're getting off here, we because we'll talk about that area when we talk about completeness, but we're talking about the superficiality that starts, then there's a testing, then there becomes exposure. And so that's where we're, we're at right now. And then when exposure happens, we tend to conflict with each other. Mm-hmm. So I don't like what you're saying, or I don't think what you're saying is correct, or right. So um, and then the, the next thing, it, you know, the we want to be able to connect with each other, but we have these differences and offenses, and now you've hurt me, and now I'm pulling away, or I'm yelling at you, and so that breaks the relationship, what do we do then? What do we do? How do you get it restored?
1: Well, there are a few different things that happen. I mean, one thing you can do is duke it out. You know, some people enter into a conflict and you mean
2: emotionally or physically? <laughs>
1: I mean verbally.
2: Verbally. Okay. you got to explain <laughs> I, these yeah, things because I'm there are saying, people that are I'm dealing with violent relationships. Yeah.
1: I'm not saying it's okay to go in there and start punching right. each other. Right, right, right. But I think that some people just yell at each other mm-hmm. and get all their cards out on the table and throw all their emotion out there at each other and they... They just say really, really nasty things to each other and attack each other, but that rarely works. (laughs) And uh, so So, when that happens, they end up separating. Eventually, you can either try to just bury that and hope that it goes away and the things will smooth over of their own, just with the passage of time. Well, eventually, you know, he's got to sit down at the table. We have to eat the next meal. We have to get Right, but you shove
2: that stuff underneath, but it's still there.
1: It's still there underneath the surface. And and the next time a conflict occurs, it's going to be even worse because it's just going to rip the scab off of the wound. And so you have to learn healthy patterns of communication in order to be able to work through that and forgive each other and get back into a relationship with Which each other. Which
2: produces oneness in terms of that relationship. In other words, things are clear right. between us.
1: But any conflict is going to result in some kind of separation. Well,
2: it could be emotional, it could be physical, and/or it, it definitely is spiritual. And that's one of the reasons why men and women have a hard time praying with each other because they already have things against each other. And scripture tells us: go to your brother while they're in the way and make it right with them. So if I know there's something that I have against you, I need to go to you. But if I, you know, see you walking around quiet or slam, you know, closing doors real hard or putting dishes in the dishwasher, and I'm realizing, hmm, something's not right here, I still am supposed to go to you and talk to you about it. So we'll talk more about forgiveness and what that means. I mean, we'll do a whole uh, session on that. Let me just talk about a little article we put, again, in our workshop that we have. And you can get the Um, marital mystery tour workshop on our website, which is walkandtalk.org, O-R-G. But what's a healthy relationship? You feel respected as a person, you like the other person, and you feel liked by them. You appreciate, and you're not taking them for granted. You're not afraid to be yourself. You can communicate effectively with your partner, and you can affirm and support one another. Trust, trust, trust. Trust is everywhere responsibilities are shared. Your privacy is respected. You're not constantly fighting for control. You want to spend time together. Love is a verb. It's not just a noun. So it's action. And you're growing in a relationship uh, and your relationship constantly is growing if it's a healthy friendship. You feel good about yourself in the relationship because your partner is excited about who you are. Now, all this kind of relationship, this is adapted from Perfect Daughters by Robert Ackerman, who's a PhD. So what we want to do is complete each other, not compete against each other. And we want to build that friendship. And we will talk about building a friendship room number two uh, next time on Walking Your Talk with Alan and Polly Heller.
1: This has been Walking Our Talk with Alan and Polly Heller where we put into action those principles we know from God's Word, one step at a time. You can find more help at our website, walkandtalk.org.
3: And I
0: Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Why Jesus Was Baptized. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark.
4: We are in the Gospel of Mark. We just began our study last week, so I would invite you please to turn to the Gospel of Mark. I want to dive right in, okay? So we're just going to... Look at verse 1. Mark was written from Rome by John Mark, who was the protege, the PA, personal assistant of the Apostle Peter. And either John Mark was writing the recollections he had of being with Peter and hearing Peter's teachings and sermons over and over and over, or Peter was actually dictating this book, this gospel, to John Mark, and John Mark wrote it. It was the very first gospel that was written. And it's the shortest, 16 chapters, and we're going to find an incredible record here. Now, Mark has written, as I said, to Gentiles, to Romans, and we're going to see that the message of Jesus is tailor-made for where they are, for their culture, and for their special the needs that they have at that time. So Mark begins, no frills, he doesn't begin his gospel with discussion, dialogue, argument, he begins by declaring that this book contains the message of good news. Verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's it. Good news is what gospel means. It's an ancient word. Uh, this is the real historical Jesus. And Mark is saying that Jesus is the personification of good news. He brought the glad tidings. Now, we generally think of the word gospel as a Christian word, and it basically has become our word, right? Gospel means good news, or it can mean glad tidings, okay? It, though, predates Christianity by a long time. It was actually a very secular word that was used by the Romans to talk about the time when an emperor was born and there was a huge celebration, time off, parties, you know, that kind of stuff emperors were believed to be gods. So it was actually a celebration of the good news of the birth of the emperor God. What did the angels say to the shepherds as they were announcing the birth of Jesus? They said, I bring you good tidings Gospel, good news, right? Of a great joy, which shall be for all the people. For unto you, this day is born a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. You see, the good news, the glad tidings, is about the birth of a what? God, of a God King. Following me, that's pretty cool, isn't it? So when he says this is the good news, already his Roman heroes are like, good news, good news. What is there a king? Is there a what's going on here? So. We've used that word now, and it means what Jesus, the gospel of what Jesus has done for us, but in the ancient world, it had this idea of, wow, super glad tidings, the king has come, and that's all about Jesus. Now, Mark very clearly, and right at the beginning, wants us to know that Jesus is the Messiah because the Messiah was predicted to have a forerunner. There would be a prophet who would announce the arrival and the, or the imminent uh, arrival of the Messiah. And so we want to look at verses 2, 3, and verse 6 as well. Verse 2, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, and this is a prophecy hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was born. So as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before you. Who prepare your way? The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Verse 6. Now John, John is his messenger, was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Okay. Here's this guy. He's dressed kind of funny, okay? He lives out in the wilderness and he eats bugs. The locusts could be translated something, the carob. From the carob tree, the carob pods, they're a good source of nutrition and all. So maybe he was eating those. So why is this described? Because Elijah the prophet, one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament, dressed this way and lived this way. So there is a correlation. People are seeing, we haven't had a prophet in 300 years. Okay, that was true. And now there is this man who looks like the description of Elijah. He's living in the wilderness like Elijah. He's talking like Elijah. He is fulfilling the prophecy from Malachi and Isaiah that a forerunner would come, a messenger would prepare the way of the Messiah. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight, it says. This is the term uh, that you would use if you were making a road. You would cut a road straight. John is preparing the way for the Messiah. He's clearing things out of the way. Some things need to be bulldozered. They need to be taken away and it can come at quite a cost. John ultimately give his life. So I'm thinking of John. Oh, there's something else I want to point out to you. At the beginning of verse 1, it says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Who is Jesus? Look at verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. That is, John is crying in the wilderness. And what is John saying? Prepare the way of who? The Lord. Make his path straight. The word Lord in the prophecy of Isaiah is capital L-O-R-D. It's the sacred name of God. And so... Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Jesus Christ is the Lord, which means Jesus Christ is God the Son. You see the tie-in here. So who is the Son of God? Well, he is God the Son, and that's the one whose paths is being made uh, for. Now, the message uh, that John is giving was preparatory. He called the people to repent and be ready to receive Jesus. Look at verses 7 and 8. And he preached, saying... After me, John is saying, after me, he who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So John is saying, very simply, I am not the message, okay? I am the messenger, but I'm not the message. I'm here to prep the way for the Messiah, and he is mightier than I am. In other words, he's stronger, he has more authority than I do, and he is much more worthy than I am. In fact, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. It was considered beneath the level of a slave to do that. John here then is saying, when it compares to me and the worth of Jesus, I am less than a slave. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals, which is the job of somebody less than a slave. I am lower even than that. So John is acknowledging the greatness and the worthiness of Jesus. John's message is really clear. I think it's twofold. Look at verse four. It's kind of a no-brainer. First of all, his message was a message of repentance. Look at verse 4. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance. Now realize that John's baptism is not Christian baptism. There were no Christians yet, right? Even though he's John the Baptist, there weren't Baptists even in those days. You know what I'm saying? There are a lot of Baptists, but there weren't any then. So, John is the baptizer. It's not a Christian baptism. The Jews were used to baptisms. Did you know that baptism is not unique to Christianity? Christians didn't start baptism. The Jews baptized for thousands and thousands of years. It was part of the law of Moses that they baptize, immerse frequently. They would immerse themselves often uh, weekly for people, monthly for people. It was a ritual that was very important. What they did was they had areas that looked pretty much like rectangular baptistry, just like we use, or I think jacuzzi with no jets, okay? And they would go down, stepping down into this water. It could be about chest high, and they would immerse themselves, go down under the water, would come up out of the water, And they believe that when you went under the water, you died. And when you came up out of the water, you had a new life. Does that sound like what we believe about baptism? What it symbolically shows, right? And so when the Apostle Paul is introducing baptism and Jesus introduces baptism before that, it's this Jewish concept. So it wasn't new. It was just we are being baptized in Jesus' name, right? That's what makes our baptism distinctly Christian. So John's baptism was just another Jewish baptism, but it was specifically a baptism of what? Repentance. Now the word baptism means to immerse. All this background. Are you okay with this? A lot of little background here. Baptism isn't a Christian word either. I mean, it is, but it didn't start with us. It was an ancient word that meant to dip under, and it was used a lot by people who were dyeing cloth into, uh, to make fabric different colors. So you would take your cloth, and you had, let's say, some blue dye, and you would dip it down into that dye, you would push it in, you would soak it, you would immerse it, and then you would bring it up, and there it would be transformed, and there's your blue material, right? That word, you don't have to remember this, but you probably will. That word is baptizo. Sounds like baptize, right? Baptizo. And so baptizo always is immersion. Unless you wanted polka dots, then you would sprinkle, right, on the fabric. Follow me? It always, always means to immerse, to go down under, and to come back up. Jewish baptism was always immersion, They never sprinkled, they never poured, and so this whole picture of John's baptism was people were coming by the tens of thousands or more, and they were going to the Jordan River because there was no other place in Jerusalem big enough to do this. They're going to the Jordan River, and they were being baptized into the baptism of repentance. In other words, they were immersing themselves in repentance. God, I'm turning from my sin because that's what repentance means, right? The word repentance, is not hard to understand. To repent means to turn around. Repentance happens when we see God showing us that what we're doing is sin. And we stop and we acknowledge that, God, you were right. And we turn around and we go the other way, the right way. Instead of walking the way to hell, when you were saved, you gave your life to Jesus And that meant you turned and you're going to heaven. You're walking toward heaven and not toward hell. Amen? So that's repentance. And God grants repentance. God gives repentance. And so looking at verse 5. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So as John was baptizing people... He also pointed them toward where forgiveness could happen, and that would be the second part of his message. First was repentance. The second is forgiveness. I mean, you can convict people that they're doing the wrong things, but you can't just leave them there, right? You've got to give them the solution, the resolution for their conviction. Okay, I'm convicted. What I've done is wrong. It's sin, so... And that's where we come along with Jesus, right? and Jesus offering forgiveness. And that's exactly what John did. Now, it doesn't tell us right here that John pointed people to Jesus for forgiveness. So you say, well, how do you know he did that? Go there the write a few books to the book of Acts. We're going to look at Acts chapter 19. We get a little more insight into what was going on when John was baptizing people and a little bit more about what he was telling people. So I'm saying he uh, told people to repent, and then he also pointed them to where they could find forgiveness. Acts chapter 19, a little bit of background here. Paul is beginning his third missionary journey, and he happens to go through the area where the city of Ephesus is. Later, there'll be a church started there. And later, Paul will write a letter to them, and it's the letter that's called the book of Ephesians, right? So, chapter 19, verse 1, and it happened while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. Now, these were followers of God, but they weren't Christians yet. How do we know? We'll look at verse 2. And Paul said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we haven't even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. Some Christians live like that too, don't they? We haven't even heard there's a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, well, then into what were you baptized? And they said, what, gang, into John's baptism. Well, then Paul explains, well, wait a minute. John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him that is who Jesus so John was baptizing people who were confessing their sins yes but he was also saying when the messiah comes you believe in him and ultimately sometime during that time Jesus came to be baptized John 129 Jesus is coming down to the river Jordan To be baptized, and John says what? Behold what? The Lamb of God who what? Takes away the sins of the world. So John was pointing to Jesus, who was uh, the one who would forgive sins. And so it wasn't just a message of repentance. It was a message of, okay, now here's what you need to do now that you've repented. I've made the way for the Messiah, and now I'm going to move aside, and Jesus takes over. Look at verses 9 through 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came out of the water, may I pause? May I pause just one more time to emphasize that baptism is immersion. Jesus went down into the water and he came up, what? Out of the water. We're told again in the book of Acts that when Philip baptized the Ethiopian, they went down into the water and he was baptized. The early, early churches that have been excavated all had baptistries where you would go down into the water and you would be immersed, all right? You would go down and you would come up. Why am I saying this? I'm saying this because biblical Baptism is baptism by immersion. It's not baptism by sprinkling or by pouring. Now, let me just pause to say, if you've been sprinkled as a baby or as an adult, but let's talk about babies first, you were not baptized biblically. Mom and dad loved you so much that they didn't want you to be lost Because they were taught that unless you were baptized, you would be lost. The other way to say that is they were taught that baptism saves you. And so you want that child to be baptized before anything could happen, right? Because you want that child to be saved. The Bible doesn't teach that. Number one, the Bible teaches that little children belong to Jesus. And even if they die, they belong to Jesus because he died for them They're innocent. They can't make a decision for themselves, so Jesus has all those little ones. They belong to Him. Amen? It's amazing. Thank you, Lord. The Bible also teaches as we see people who are baptized, they are to believe and be baptized. Little babies can't believe, right? They can't choose. Are you all on the same page with me? They can't. Only adults, only people who reach a certain age of being able to comprehend things can believe and be baptized. So we understand that you must be old enough to believe, to be a believer, to choose and understand baptism, and then you must be immersed. And the Bible never teaches that baptism saves you, okay? Baptism represents what Jesus did for us that saves us. Jesus' death... Jesus' burial and Jesus' resurrection saves us. That's what baptism teaches. And I'll talk about that more in just a minute. It says in verse 10, And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my what? Beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Now I have a question, why was Jesus baptized? I mean, I think it's a good question to ask. After all, this was a baptism of what? Repentance. So why would Jesus be baptized by John? Did Jesus ever need to repent? No, John knew that too. All the people coming to John were in need of repentance. Jesus was sinless. He didn't even qualify for this baptism. So here are a few reasons why Jesus was baptized. First of all, Jesus' baptism served as an announcement that he was the Messiah. Again, look at verses 9 through 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And then the voice from heaven when says, you're my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. Nothing like this has ever happened before or since. Ever. You read the Bible. This has never happened before. When John says the heavens were, were open, it means ripped open. So something amazing happened even in the firmament. You know, something was ripped open. And then the form that the Holy Spirit took to manifest his presence at Jesus' baptism was very significant. Why the form of a dove? You know, as Christians, we always, and for good reason, we think the dove is a a symbol of the Holy Spirit. For years, we used to have a dove up front, and it was kind of stylized. Some years ago, People who were not believers or who were kind of new and not, didn't have a lot of Christian. But for us believers, we think, oh, Holy Spirit dove. And so we look at that and we saw everybody there in the crowd would think, oh, the Holy Spirit. No. For Jews of the first century, the dove was not a sign of the Holy Spirit. The dove was a sign of Israel. Did you know that? It was a sign of Israel. So if you were a Jew and you saw that, you're thinking, Israel? This is God saying, this man is the true Israel. He is the true Israelite. He is the Messiah that was prophesied to come from all the sons of Israel. This is my chosen son. That's what Jews would have thought. Now, Does it represent the Holy Spirit? Of course, the Holy Spirit coming upon Jesus, anointing him. But for Jews who are seeing that, they're thinking, whoa, this is God's chosen one. He is the true Israelite whom God has chosen to be the Messiah. Now, the voice of God at Jesus' baptism is supposed to draw our attention to something. Now, before I go into that, I I just want to set some background. In Bible days, you... And I couldn't afford books. In fact, at a certain point, books weren't even invented. They were all scrolls, all right? And they were so expensive that only very wealthy people could afford them. And there would be the scrolls that would be in the synagogue, the scriptures in the synagogue. They would be read every Sabbath day. And so you would go and you would hear, because you probably couldn't read So you would listen to the scripture and you would memorize it. And why remember anything anyway? You can just Google it again, right? But not in ancient times. They held on to their stuff. They knew it. So when the rabbis taught, they would just bring up the first line of a section that you had memorized, and then you would proceed from there. Because remember, there weren't any chapters or verses. Those came much, much, much later. There wasn't Isaiah 1, Isaiah 2, Isaiah 3. It was just one long you know, message from the prophet Isaiah. So, like when Jesus was hanging on the cross, and he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To us, we think, whoa, you know, that's important. I understand that. It means that God forsook Jesus. To the Jew of the first century, Jesus was doing what rabbis do. And this is what Jesus was doing. Rabbis would say the first line of a section of scripture so that their students would think of the entire section of scripture. So when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He said what every good rabbi was doing. He was quoting the first line of Psalm 22. Psalm 22. Because he wanted the people to think Psalm 22, which describes perfectly the crucifixion of the Messiah. Everything that was happening to Jesus on the cross, Psalm 22 describes. So on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was saying, look at Isaiah 22. I'm the Messiah. It would be like me saying to you guys, and you know, John 3.16, nobody has to look it up. Nobody has to say, I oh, forgot to love the world again. You don't have to do that. You like almost feel it, right? John 3, 16, you know what it is, right? So when God says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, God's doing that. What's he doing? Can I take you someplace and just take you, you want to go off the road for a minute? Okay, let's go to Isaiah 42. Make sure you hold your place here in Mark. Middle-ish. In your Old Testament, Isaiah 42 talks about the servant of the Lord who is the Messiah. So, Isaiah 42 is talking about the Messiah and what he will do. So, who's the Messiah? Jesus. It's talking about what Jesus will do. So, remember, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Look at how Isaiah 42.1 begins. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. Basically, the very same thing. I delight in my son, my servant. I'm well pleased in him. And he says, I have put my spirit upon him. So what happens at the baptism of Jesus? The Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus, right? So we've got what happens right there at Jesus' baptism. Now here's what God's chosen one in whom he is well pleased. This is what God's chosen one, in whom his soul delights, will do. Look at verse one. This is what it was predicted that the Messiah or Jesus would do. First of all, he will bring forth justice to the nations. It's the job of the Messiah to take hold of the world and bring in perfect righteousness. When Jesus was in Israel, he did everything whenever he was there to make things right. Is the world perfect yet? No. Messiah will completely bring in righteousness during the millennium, during the thousand-year reign. Jesus will reign on this earth, and he will reign the nation, Psalm 2 says, with a rod of iron. If anybody gets out of line, whack, okay? Get back in the line or you're gone, okay? Verse 2. What else will Jesus, the Messiah, do? He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. He's not going to be loud. He's not going to be obnoxious. He's going to be meek. He's going to be quiet. No trumpets, in you know, announcing his arrival. Verse 3, a bruised reed he will not break. This is really important. I want to pause here for a minute. When the Messiah comes, he will not break a bruised reed. Now, I stop there and I think about this. What is a bruised reed? Well, it's something very fragile. You know a reed. You know what a reed is. When a reed is broken or it's bent over, you could easily just break it off and throw it away. The prophet says he will not break the bruised reed, but rather he'll try to restore it. Is that cool? Jesus isn't out to crush you. (laughs) Jesus wants to put you back where you belong. He wants to put you back in place. And then it goes on to say, what is the Messiah going to do? It says, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Faintly burning wicks, what do they do? Well, they don't give off enough light, and they're usually pretty smoky, right? Ever have a candle or a lamp, or it just gets smoky and it's in your face and you just want to blow it out, and you get a different one. A smoking, smoldering Wick, he will not blow out. Jesus is there to tend you. Even when you're not burning as brightly as you should, even when you're making more smoke than light, Jesus is there to tend you. He wants to fan the flames of your life. This is amazing, isn't it? And then let me just go on. It says, verse 3, he will faithfully bring forth justice. Look at verse 4. He will not grow faint or discouraged. Till he has established justice on the earth. In other words, this plan of salvation isn't gonna stop till it's done. And verse 4B, talking about us. And the coastlands will wait for his law. We could translate the law, the word law, as the word, the word of God. It says, the coastlands will wait for his law. This is a prediction that The word, the gospel of the Messiah will go way beyond the Mediterranean. That's the coastland of Israel. It'll go way beyond to the islands. Think Great Britain, to the islands, to the coastlands, North America, around the world. Isaiah the prophet is saying, the gospel message is gonna go way out across the world. That's pretty cool, isn't it? And then verse six, the end of six, I will give you as a covenant, for the people, a light for the nations. So the Messiah is coming now and he established a new covenant and the gospel is for all the nations. Verse seven, the work of the Messiah is to open the eyes that are blind. Did Jesus do that during his ministry? Yep. Does he do it spiritually? Sure he does. And he will bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. And Jesus brings us from being slaves to sin, to being free, from being in the darkness, to coming into the light of his love and grace. So his baptism was this announcement from God. This is my beloved son. He's the Messiah in whom I'm well pleased. Another reason why Jesus was baptized was to fulfill all righteousness. You don't need to look there, but if you want to make a note, In Mark's record of Jesus' baptism, in Mark chapter 3, 13 through 15, the story's pretty much the same. Jesus came down to the water to be baptized by John, but here's where it gives us a little more detail. It says that when Jesus came to be baptized, John would have prevented him, verse 14, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Why do you come to me? But Jesus said, this is why I need to be baptized. He says, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? Jesus says, no, I need to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. Have you ever perfectly, righteously repented, perfectly repented of your sin? No. None of us have perfectly repented for our sin. But you know what? Jesus has repented for your sin. He had no sin of his own to repent of, but he took upon himself your sin, and there is now perfect repentance credited to you through Jesus. Righteousness is fulfilled. Isn't that cool? Another reason why Jesus was baptized was because he was declaring his mission When we stand in the waters of baptism, we're understanding that we're going under that water and it represents death, burial, and resurrection. Like, when we're baptized as believers, here's Jesus and here's us, and we are saying, Jesus, I believe in you and I'm identifying with your death. Your death is my death. You're dying for my sins and... I'm with you. So we die with Jesus. Then under the water represents what, gang? Burial, right? And I am buried with Jesus. And what happens? Those sins are annihilated. They're gone. And then when we rise up from the water, it represents Jesus' resurrection. And we have been raised with Christ, right? That's what it pictures. Death, burial, and resurrection. So when Jesus came to this world at 30 years old, he comes and he walks down into the Jordan River and he's baptized and basically his baptism is a declaration of this is what I've come to do. I've come to live, to die, to be buried and to rise from the dead. He's declaring, this is why I'm here. You know, for most religious leaders, all religious leaders, death has interrupted their mission. Buddha, he died and he didn't finish his mission. With Jesus, death didn't interrupt anything. Death was why he came. He came to die. He came to conquer death, to be buried and to rise from the dead, right? And so he's down in the water. He's saying, this is why I've come. And he's come as a servant To serve God, the Son of God came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That's why Jesus came. And so as the servant of God, he comes down into the water, proclaims what he's going to do in symbol. And then as a servant, of course, you can only serve God if you have his special power. And so the Holy Spirit's power comes upon him and now he can begin his ministry. I want to encourage you, to realize that Jesus is the Messiah who will heal you the Messiah who will bind you up if you're broken and hurting I want to encourage you to realize that if you're making more smoke than light right now Jesus wants to work in your life to change things to make you a bright light to fix things for you that's what Jesus is all about I want to encourage you as well to follow Jesus' example and be baptized, all right? If you haven't been baptized, I have to say, why not? If you were baptized as a child, you won't dishonor mom and dad if you're baptized as a believer. Look at it this way. Mom and dad, if they knew the truth about what the Bible teaches, mom and dad would have waited and they would have had you be baptized when you were old enough to believe because they loved you so much and they loved God enough that they would have waited to do what the Bible teaches. They just didn't know, right? So I want to encourage you be baptized, follow Jesus, be obedient to Him. Baptism doesn't save you, but baptism is a picture of what does save me. Say that. Baptism is a picture of what does save me. So do I need to be baptized? Well, you're not going to go to hell if you're not. But you're disobeying Jesus. And why do you say you're a follower if you're not going to do what he says? And Jesus commanded, didn't suggest, commanded us to be baptized. Because he wants the whole world to know that you believe in him and you believe his death. And you're united with his death, his burial, and his resurrection is what saves you. And you're saying, I'm hanging under that. I agree with that. I'm accepting that. Amen. All right. So I want to pray right now. I want to ask God's pour out his goodness and blessing on us. Lord, we thank you for the word and for what it speaks to us. Thank you again that your words are true. Your words are pure words. Your words are holy and they work in our lives. You've spoken there's a lot of things that's been said in There are certain things that are sticking, and we just pray that we'll now act on what we know, act on what we've heard. I want to pray for those that really are faced again with the decision to be baptized, and and it's been put off for whatever reason or hasn't been convenient. Lord, I just ask that you will now do the work and that there would be an obedience of heart now to follow you. I also pray, Lord, for those who are broken those who feel like they're just not burning brightly, that they would realize how you come alongside and you are working with them and that you love them and encourage them. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen.
5: Heart and Soul Ministries is now starting a new Japanese program and is able to spread the gospel in Japanese. If you know anyone that is fluent in Japanese, please let them know of this program. We hope that they will be able to hear the gospel of Jesus through our CDs. If you are interested, please contact us at our office. Our office number is 602-866-8999 and our email address is heartandsoul.org at gmail.com Thank you!
0: Coming up next is It's Time to Pray the Bible
5: Hello, my name is Deborah Joy I am the host of this program it's time to pray the Bible. Recently, as I read the question, Jesus was asking His disciples, But who do you say that I am? In Matthew chapter 16, verse 15, it echoed in my mind. As I began to ponder this question, I was reminded of different names and attributes of God throughout the Bible and how our Heavenly Father longs to reveal Himself to us so we can have an intimate relationship with Him. Jesus knew the beauty and strength of God's name. As He taught His disciples to pray, He told them to hallow the Father's name. Have you ever asked yourself what it means to hallow His name? The word hallow means to make holy, sanctify, consecrate, to set apart as holy. As His children, we are invited to joyfully honor and declare His holy name, to exalt Him and give Him glory. Today, as we meditate and praise His glorious name together, I pray God will kindle fresh passion and the fire of the Holy Spirit in our hearts to become more like Jesus. Today's scripture reading is Psalm 145. Verses 1 through 6 and 11 through 13. I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and highly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works, I will meditate. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts, and I will tell of your greatness. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Let's pray this word and let us exalt his powerful name together. Lord, our hearts explode with praise to you. Now and forever, our hearts bow in worship to you, our King and our God. Every day, we'll lift up our praise to your holy name with praises that will last throughout eternity. Lord, you are great and worthy of the highest praise for there is no end to the discovery of the greatness that surrounds you. Generation after generation will declare your awe-inspiring acts of power and proclaim the revelation of your glory. Your magnificent splendor and the miracles of your majesty are a constant meditation. We are telling people everywhere about your excellent greatness. Lord, we worship you passionately with all of our hearts. You are the God Almighty, who is the creator of heaven and the earth. Your loving kindness is everlasting and your faithfulness to all generations. God of heaven's armies, you are the Lord of hosts and the commander of all the armies of heaven you have established your throne in the heavens your sovereignty rules over all you are the lord of victory armed and ready for battle the mighty one the invincible commander of heaven's hosts you are the king of glory you find so much beauty in your people Deep within us are these longings and desires of living in union with you. You alone are our refuge, our shield, our fortress in whom we trust with all of our hearts. You are our rock who trains our hands for war and our fingers for battle. You are our Savior, our Deliverer, and our God in whom we find protection. You have rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of your beloved Son who purchased our freedom and forgave all of our sins. The Son of Righteousness arises for us with healing in your wings. Lord, you heal the brokenhearted and set the captives free by the power of your Spirit and truth. You are the righteous Lord who loves what is right and just. And every godly one will come into your presence and gaze upon your face. You are our loving shepherd who restores our soul and revives our life. You always guide us in the path of righteousness. Your authority is our strength and our peace. You are Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You are the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who lives and reigns forever. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever.
6: Savior is Jesus, my Lord. He taketh my burden away. He holdeth me up, and I shall not be moved. He His brightness transported. I rise to meet Him in clouds of the sky. His perfect salvation, His wonderful love.